Uh, I just want to give a big thank you to Abby and the worship team for leading us so well in worship. And this morning, we're going to continue our sermon series in Luke in Acts. And uh, up to this point, we've been considering how Luke has been telling us about this Jesus who has arrived on the scene and has said, I'm here to bring good news to the poor. And we've been seeing Jesus move around from village to village doing three main things. He's been preaching. He's been announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And he's also been teaching. He's been explaining to people as he announces the kingdom what the arrival of the kingdom means for their lives and what that kingdom is like. And lastly, he's been healing. He's been demonstrating and manifesting the presence of the kingdom in real time and in real ways in people's lives, showing them that the kingdom of God is one in which uh, people are put back together again. And this morning, we're diving into the last section of, of, a, of a longer teaching that Jesus has been given in Luke chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to have that out and open uh, to Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 49. Uh, if you're using a blue Bible, you can find that on page 837. And we are going to read that together now. I invite you to open up, because we will be referencing the passage Uh, as we journey this morning. So Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 49. And let's let's open our ears, because what we're about to hear is God's word. It says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes, or grapes from briars. The good man brings out good things out of the goods stored in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't we pray? Living God, we thank you for the words we have just heard, and we remember now that these were inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would open our hearts and our minds now for these words to land in us, that we would hear them, and not only hear them, but that we would do them that these words by your power would result in transformation, in life, in wholeness, and fruitfulness in us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In these parables, Jesus considers two trees and two houses. And that's the title of this morning's message. It's a very creative title. I thank you for that. Um, But before we explore these parables, I just want us to remember what Jesus has just said in his teaching. 
Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Tim Barons unfolded Jesus' words beginning in verse 37 of this same chapter. You remember, if you were here, that Jesus said, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And in that section of, of Jesus' sermon, he welcomes us into gracious and mercy-filled living, a generous kind of living, especially in respect to one another and how we relate to each other. And when he did that, he set his sights on our judgmentalism, right? That, that tendency that we have to, to find the faults of others and how we so often fail to show mercy to people, even though God has been so merciful to us. And, and Jesus, remember, he talked about the, the beam in your eye, that you need to first deal with that before you look to your brother or sister to help them remove the speck. He's just saying that that magnifying glass that we often like to hold up to others and examine their faults first needs to be turned on ourselves. We need honest self-examination. We need to confess the waves. We fall short, and we need to repent. We need to turn back to Jesus in all of our messiness and let him change us. So Jesus says, don't judge. And you might have been wondering two weeks ago, and you might be wondering today, so is Jesus saying we should be fuzzy about what's right and wrong? I mean, that's often how people in our culture hear those words. Uh, you know, people will say, Jesus said, don't judge. And uh, that's taken to mean, oh, there's nothing to judge. Or you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Or that there is no right and wrong. Or that truth is somehow this, this like moving target uh, that no one can exactly pin down. Or that there is no wrong direction to take in life. And that the right direction is, is the direction you want to go in. Sound familiar? Is Jesus saying that? Does Jesus want us to be fuzzy? There are places in the Bible where people do make judgments. I want you to hear what Paul says to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last day. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And the list goes on. That's only like a quarter of the list. He keeps going on with all these things. Is Paul disobeying Jesus by writing this? Or does Jesus contradict himself? If you have your Bible, just turn over to the next page to chapter 7, verse 43. Jesus has just said a parable and has asked Peter a question. And Peter has responded uh, with wisdom and a right decision. Look at what Jesus says, chapter 7, verse 43. He says, you have judged correctly. It's the exact same word. Is Jesus forbidding judging in one moment and then the next breath patting Simon on the back for judging? I don't think so. Because there's a difference between judging in that sense of fault-finding and judging in the sense of making a right decision, right? The one flows from our sinful nature and our blindness and it destroys people and it corrodes community. But the other one, the judging in terms of making a right decision flows from God 
and his truth and from his character as a holy God. And it actually brings life and leads to wholeness and a thriving community. Because the fact of the matter is we, we live in a moral universe where truth and falsehood are both options available to us. Right On a daily basis, you can choose good and evil. You can choose shalom or chaos. You can choose life or death, heaven or hell. These are all available options to you and I that we can choose to live towards in a thousand different ways every day. And we need to be able to to judge well, to, to discern how we are going to live well to follow Jesus. And and that's what he's really zeroing in on in these parables. He wants us to be people who are reorienting their lives around him, right? Reorienting their lives around his kingdom. And this requires a knowledge of truth and being able to discern what's right and wrong and, and the right direction. So let's get into what Jesus says. First, he talks about two trees, One tree is good and one tree is bad. Notice that Jesus has made a judgment. And he wants us to know how to tell which tree is which. That's the point of the parable. Look in verse 44. He says, each tree is recognized by its fruit. So there are thorn bushes out there, okay? These are trees that don't really produce fruit. Um, they, they, They have those thorny spikes and they're often even filled with poison. Have you ever been scratched by a thorn bush? And then later you look and see that your like, skin is red and like swollen? There are those kind of trees out there, and they don't benefit others. They're hostile. Um, they don't produce fruit. But then there are trees that make fruit, okay? And they benefit other creatures. They're great for birds to go and make a nest in. They're great to, you know, when you're walking through the forest and there's an apple tree, and it looks like it's just extending its branch and like dangling an apple before you, and you're like, yes, I will take that apple, and I will eat it with relish. Thank you. But Jesus isn't giving gardening advice, right? He's talking about people. How can you tell what kind of person you are? How can you tell if you're heading in the right direction? How might we be able to tell this with others? And when we make that step um, to, to look at others, remember what Jesus has said, the beam in our own eye, first uh, examining ourselves, which then enables us to see clearly. And we don't discern others to find fault in them, but here's why we need to discern. Because we need to know who we're going to trust, right? We're, we need to know who, who we're going to look to as an example, who I'm going to tell my kids, hey, look at this person because they're a good example to follow. They're going the right way. Or or even when we're thinking about who's going to lead us. This is really important. How are we going to know? Some of the things we often tend to look at are success, right? Is this person powerful? Can this person sway and hold command in a room? Is it their charisma? Is it their good looks? Jesus is saying, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit, because all those things can be misleading. And look at how he defines fruit. Fruit uh, in the New Testament is defined as our 
our deeds and, and sort of the effects that our deeds cause, but look at what he focuses on in verse 45. He says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He focuses on words. He focuses on our speech. And what he says is profoundly unsettling. <laughs> that our words expose what's in our hearts. It's like, think of a projector. Our words project what's inside of us to those around us, to those who are hearing our words. Our words show us what controls us. Our words show what we think about, what we care about, what we're worried about. Our words show what we worship. There's a saying that I learned as a kid, and you might know it too. Sticks and stones. Anyone? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I really hope they don't teach kids that anymore. I mean, I think it was taught, like I remember hearing it, and I think the intention was uh, to help me and my, my peers cope with bullying, right? It's like, don't worry when the bully calls you a name. It can't hurt you. But it just leaves you confused because you're like, if it can't hurt me, why does it hurt so bad? Yeah. It's misguided because it's not true. It's just so not true. Words and names can hurt us deeply. And what we need to do is stop thinking that what we say to people doesn't matter. I mean, Proverbs 18.21 says this about our words, it says the tongue, meaning our speech has the power of life and death. Whoa. And I'm willing to guess that for many of us, we can resonate with that. We can think of instances where the words of others have breathed life into us. And we can think of other instances where the words of others have just sucked the life out of us or wrecked us. Look at the fruit. Look at words and what people say. And in particular, what the effects of their words are. Do people leave behind in their wake hatred and cruelty? Right? Um, thinking about it with us. Like, do, do I tear people down? Are my words adding to the wreckage and chaos in the world? Or do my words produce love and kindness? I saw a woman with a statement t-shirt yesterday. It was awesome. It said, kindness looks so good on you. And isn't that just true? Of every human being on the planet? Like, when you see someone who's being kind, you're like, yeah. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what you're wearing, looks good on you. Do we leave kindness in our wake? Or do our words bear witness to a loving and merciful God? Do we leave the peace of Christ behind? I think sometimes we underestimate the power of, of the kindness of our words. Maybe we sometimes forget that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's a power for good in our lives and in other people's lives. So Jesus is saying in this parable of, of two trees, if you want to discern well, if you're walking in the right direction, look at what you say. Look at what you say and look at what people say. 
So Jesus clearly doesn't agree with that saying, uh, you know, it, it's not what you say, but what you do that counts. He, he totally disregards that. What we say does count, but what we do also counts. And that's what he's going to turn to in the parable of the two houses. Look at verse 46. Jesus pivots us into the next parable with these words. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do what I say? And this question is really aimed at one of our weaknesses, isn't it? That weakness where we can have a disconnect between what we say and what we do, where we can fall into offering lip service to God. Right? Notice how he's talking to people who call Jesus Lord. He's talking to people who, who confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord, that he has authority. And Jesus is saying that, you know, as, as you follow me and walk out this Christian life, it's possible and it's probable that people will call out to me, Lord, Lord, help me, save me, bless me. I'm a Christian, whatever they're saying, but then disregard his teaching. Our words show what's in our hearts, but now he starts to say, but our words can be a smokescreen, right? Our words can be this, uh, this screen of pretension where we try to hide our unbelief or cl- uh, cloak the fact that we're actually not fully on board with Jesus. And, and, and God's people can fall into this. In Isaiah 29, God calls his people out for doing this. He says, these people come near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the issue then was that Israel, God's people, weren't obeying God's commands. And that's the same issue that Jesus is raising in this parable. He's showing the importance of not just coming to him and hearing his words, but but doing them, putting them into practice. Look at verse 48. It says, The person who does what Jesus says and puts it into practice is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. And then he gives the opposite picture. The one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. And that's how his sermon ends. Great ending for a sermon, right? Its destruction was complete. Okay, good night. Jesus isn't mainly talking about, in that word of destruction, um, the present life. He's not mainly talking about your life now, though it comes to bear on it. He's not saying that, follow me or else you're going to fall and break your leg. Follow me or else all your investments are going to fail, right? That's karma. That's not Christianity. It's not what Jesus taught. Jesus is mainly talking about the time of the end, when judgment is going to come, when he returns. And and I know we don't often like to think about that, but Jesus puts it before us as this reminder, folks, this is where we're heading. This is where all of history is heading, that God is going to set all things right 
And he's going to give to people in an ultimate way what they have chosen for themselves. And even though he's talking about that last judgment, it is true that if you don't build on the foundation of Jesus in this life, you will start to see the effects of that. Right? You'll, you'll start to see, ah, those walls aren't quite square, or, or they're a lot more slanted than they were last year. You'll start to see gaps opening up in the floor. You'll start to see signs that things are falling apart. And maybe even for some of us, things have fallen apart in our life. And we've come to that place of recognizing that Jesus is the only way to build my life. So in this moment, we need to build well because how we build matters. It matters for now, and it matters for eternity. And the question of whether or not we'll come through in the end standing through God's judgment, it all comes down to Jesus and how you and I respond to him. How we respond when he brings us the good news of his kingdom. Will we put our faith in him? Will we give him our allegiance? And will our deeds reflect that we've actually done that and aren't just giving lip service to it? That's what Jesus is putting before us this morning. If you want to discern well yourself and others, look at what you say and look at whether you do what Jesus says. Look at whether others do what Jesus says. I want us to camp out a bit longer on this parable of the two houses just to highlight two claims that Jesus is making. First, Jesus is here claiming that he is the only way to life. You see that? He puts it another way in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here he's saying, I am the way, I am the rock, I am the foundation. No other foundation will do. And that's a big claim, right? That's, it's not a popular claim in our city and in our world. And Jesus is, is a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, he is the most inclusive person you have ever met in your life, right? He welcomes all kinds of people to himself. He, he welcomes people regardless of their past, regardless of their medical records, regardless of their intellectual abilities, regardless of their bank account. He brings the good news of God's rescue to the poor just as much as to the privileged. And if we're honest, Jesus is way more inclusive than we are, right? He invites people that I would never want to invite. He interacts with people, has dinner with people that I would never want to have dinner with. He is inclusive. His gospel and his grace are for all, but he's also exclusive. He's exclusive in that he invites all these people to put their trust in him and in him alone. To put their trust in him and him alone. And that's where we can get tripped up because there's a narrowness there, right? And sometimes that's seen as, oh, God is excluding people. But, but here's how we need to think of this. In Christ, God is holding out the greatest gift there ever was. 
When we hear of Jesus in the New Testament, we go, oh, he's so good. He's so merciful. And then when we track the narrative to see how Jesus gave his life and forgave those who were crucifying him. He's the good king who came bringing his kingdom and he died for those he loves. He's the king who lays down his life. In Christ, God holds out the greatest gift there ever was and and this is what he says. He says, this is all you need. Christ is all you need to find life and purpose and love and joy, to to find what your heart is ultimately longing for, that sense of significance and belonging, here it is. It's all you need. And when God holds out that gift and people don't believe him and they refuse the gift, who is excluding who? When people reject the gift of God in Christ, God isn't excluding us, we're excluding ourselves. And no one is more heartbroken about it than he is. God's heart is torn for the person who turns away from Jesus to go their own way. There is, my friends, a narrowness to the gospel. But the narrowness of the gate opens up into the vastness of God's mercy and his love and his joy and his incredible purpose for us. And nobody takes issue with the narrowness of the gate once they've entered into that vastness, right? Because on the other side of that gate, you start to see that what Jesus was asking me to give up, that, that, that hard thing uh, that I had to do because it, it didn't coincide with Jesus' teaching, that I had been doing my whole life and was so normal to me. It was like breathing. And Jesus asked me to give that up. That was so costly. I was offended. But now on the other side, I can see it was for my good. I can see that that would have led me down the wrong path. And that he asked me to give that up because he loves me. He wants me to thrive. He wants me to be fruitful. The narrowness of the gospel opens up into the vastness of the gospel. Jesus is claiming that he is the only foundation. He's the only rock to build our lives on in a way that's gonna last and lead to life. And Jesus just speaks this parable, leaves it there, and and the overwhelming impression that comes to us as our readers is this question, how am I gonna respond to that claim? How am I gonna respond to Jesus' claim? Some of us might be in the habit of leaving it to others to respond. Oh, that's, that's the pastor's job. It's not my job. My wife can do that for me. No, it's not her job. Oh, my mom will do it for me. No. The claim of Christ comes to each one of us. We each need to decide how we're going to build. So how are you going to respond? Second claim that Jesus is making First, he's the only solid foundation for life. Secondly, that following Jesus is hard. Notice how Jesus compares putting his words into practice to something that is really, really hard and takes a lot of work. He says it's like a man who built a house. Now, as modern day people and readers, I just want to get a survey. Who's actually built their own house? Anyone. Any, yeah, no. 
we, we can't really hear this as, as, as they would hear it. Uh, today, if you want a house, you pay someone else to do it. They come in with machines that just rip the ground like butter, dig a foundation in a day. Back in Jesus' day, people built their own houses. They dug their own foundations. No diesel engines or excavators. Just a pick, a shovel, and you. Have at it. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey notes that people in Palestine only build houses in the summer months because it doesn't rain and it's not as cold. It can actually get cold in the winter. Um, But there's one drawback to building in the summer and it's that the ground can get really hard. And there's a high clay content in the ground there. The ground can get really hard. And Jesus is saying that in that hard ground, the man dug down deep. To get to that bedrock, you had to dig down anywhere from a few inches if you were on a ridge or a hill to 10 feet if you were in a valley. And so digging your foundation was backbreaking work, was really hard work. Jesus is saying, following me is hard. And some of you might be here this morning and you might be feeling that really tangibly. And I just want to give you the word like that's what Jesus says. It's hard, but it's good. It's hard, but it's right. And some of you might be here this morning, and you might be tempted um, to kind of cut corners, right? To not dig down deep and to lay your foundation on a rock because the thing that you're trusting in, the the thing that you're giving your allegiance to, whether it's your own pleasure, your own comfort, um, your your own way of life, maybe to you it looks solid, right? Right? I mean, the world is doing that, and people seem to be, you know, successful. They have big bank accounts, nice houses. They're powerful. They've done that. Why can't I do that? Let me just tell you, uh, the ground that looks solid, what we're seeing in this parable is like the ground in my backyard um, kind of goes out into a ravine, and there's a strip of ground there, and it is completely eroded. It's like, it's dirt and it's dust, And in the summer, it is so hard. It is so hard. I couldn't imagine breaking through it. But let me tell you, when it rains, in a matter of two hours, it is chocolate pudding. And my son, Eli, loves to run back there to my great distress and just bathe in the mud and put it on his bike. Why? But what looks solid isn't in this parable. What looks solid isn't. And Jesus is saying, don't cut the corners. Don't settle for what looks solid now, but won't ultimately last and will turn into a muddy mess when the rain comes. He's telling us straight up that following him is gonna be difficult. Trusting him and putting his words into practice, even when we don't want to, um, is gonna be hard, but it's right. And the good news is, is when you build your life on Jesus, It's going to stand. It will stand because it's standing on Jesus. He is the only firm foundation for life. Amen? We've come to the end of Jesus' sermon. And if you've been tracking with us and you've been hearing Jesus' words, you'll know that Jesus' words cut us deep, don't they? And I think that's one of the things that he intends as Jesus puts forward, you know, this command to love my enemies. 
That's, that's easy. No, it's not. Jesus put forward the command to give to everyone who asks of me. And if someone were to steal my cloak, if I had a cloak, I were to give, I'm supposed to give them my coat as well. This way of reflecting uh, just the scandalous mercy and grace of God our Father and how we live, it's, it's really hard. And over and over again, as we've been journeying through this sermon, I've just been like, I fall short so much. I fall short here and there and there. And you might be in that place too this morning. You might be feeling a bit of a poorness of spirit, right? An inability to follow what Jesus says. And in that place, I would encourage you not to just dismiss what you're feeling, but actually to come to Jesus with it and to press into him. And I would say first, just hear the good news that obeying Jesus isn't what makes you right with God. Let me say that again. Obeying Jesus is not what makes you right with God. Obedience flows as a response to the fact that Jesus has made us right with God because he laid down his life for us on the cross. Uh, to take him as our foundation means that we've given up trying to make ourselves right with God and we're, we're just standing on Jesus. I'm not standing on myself. I'm not standing on my deeds. I'm not standing on anything but Christ. We don't obey in order to earn the gift. The gift has been given. We've been redeemed for those of us who are Christians. We've been adopted as his children. His love has been poured into our hearts. We're new people with a new birth. And, and every time that the New Testament calls us to obey, the flow of obedience is this. Not become something you're not, but become what you already are in Christ. You follow me. Become what you already are in Christ. Second, I wonder that as we uh, can feel our weakness and we can feel the difficulty of Jesus' way, um, that we know that Jesus doesn't just call us to something and say, okay, have at it. I'm not with you anymore. You've got to do it all yourself. No. What he calls us to do in his words, he also empowers us to do by his indwelling spirit and his presence in our life. So that when I look at my life and I see the fruit and, and I see ways that I can uh, tell that I'm going in the right direction, I don't say, oh, look at how great I am. I go say, I say, thank you, Jesus, that you are living your life in and through me. So just to encourage you this morning, if you feel that poverty of spirit, know that Jesus himself is, as we like to say in the Alliance, your sanctification. Jesus himself, his abiding presence in you is, is what is going to empower you to become what you are. For those of us who have ears to hear what Jesus is saying and, and are committed to following him, Jesus doesn't only give the word, he gives the power. Christian life is about living in that contact and connection with Jesus. And he's given us his spirit his own personal presence and power to indwell us, to teach us, and to lead us into truth. And I just want to say that this, this right here is the primary way he does that. That if the Spirit is going to call to mind everything that Jesus has said or recall to mind, we first got to get it in there, right? The Spirit convicts us, rebukes us, comforts us, and empowers us, and he's with us. 
So may we yield to him in daily dependence for everything we need. Amen? Amen. We've just come through the whole sermon. Way to go. What I want us to do now is uh, just to take a few minutes, about five minutes, and I'll ask you to turn to two or three people just kind of sitting around you. And as you think about the last few weeks, I have kind of the sermon laid out there. You might want to have a Bible open. I just invite you to share what Jesus has been saying to you in the Sermon on the Plain. It might be from today. It might be from a previous week. It might be just as you open your Bible, it jumps off the page to you. But just take a few moments uh, and share what Jesus has been saying to you. And then after that, I'm going to call us back with a prayer, and then we'll end our service in worship. All right?